This episode, Justice League number one, cover dated May 1987. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'll be your guide in each episode of this podcast. First off, thank you for deciding to join me here at the Embassy. I love these Justice League comics so much, and uh, I'm hoping we're going to have some fun with the podcast. Now, I gotta warn you, we're gonna start off a little bit like the first day of school. You gotta get your syllabus, you gotta learn what projects are coming up, you know, stuff like that. So, for about the first 15 minutes of this episode, I'm gonna explain the format of this podcast series and some of the history behind the JLI. Normally, we're not gonna start with this kind of preamble, but it's the first episode, so we should probably explain what we're doing here. If you're just dying to get started, then jump ahead about 15 minutes to where we really get rolling. As I mentioned, I'll be your guide on each episode, but I won't be going it alone. Nope. We'll have an ever-changing roster of guest hosts. Each episode, I'll be joined by a different voice from either the podcasting community, uh, a fellow JLI fan, or just somebody I feel like inviting. Once we get through the podcast format and the JLI history, I'll introduce you to today's guest host. Now, the purpose of this podcast series is going to be to discuss each issue of the various Justice League comics that were released from roughly 1987 to 1992, when the main writers were Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. This includes the main Justice League title, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, the various spin-offs, the one-shots, the annuals, and so on and so on. Now, while there's a bunch of titles in this era, uh, I'll be referring to the era with the overarching term of the Justice League International era, or simply JLI. The type of podcast we're doing here is commonly referred to as an index show, meaning we'll be covering each issue in sequential order by release date. So today, in episode one of the podcast, we'll be covering issue number one of the comic. Kind of makes sense. This will be a monthly podcast, so next month we'll cover issue number two. For the first two years of the podcast, we'll cover one issue per episode. After that, we'll be into that era where both Justice League America and Justice League Europe were both being published, so uh, at that point we'll start reviewing two issues per episode, one JLA, one JLE. And then somewhere along the lines, we'll work in Justice League quarterly. Haven't quite figured that out yet. During the lifespan of this podcast, we'll occasionally take time out to cover ancillary JLI material. Uh, instead of messing up the podcast numbering, these episodes will be labeled simply with the title of Meanwhile. On these Meanwhile episodes, we'll talk about things like the infamous unaired JLA television pilot, the various spin-offs, uh, comics like the Mr. Miracle ongoing series or maybe the Martian Manhunter miniseries. Maybe we'll talk about the JLI action figures or even the JLI appearances on the cartoon Batman the Brave and the Bold. The podcast mission itself should be complete in about five years, when we finish covering the breakdown storyline. That's when Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis left the Justice League franchise. Now, in five years when we're done, if I haven't been driven insane from doing this podcast every month, who knows? Maybe we'll tackle the uh, formerly known as the Justice League stuff by Giffen and DeMatteis. Or something else. I don't know. Time will tell. Now, before we get too much further, I need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Each episode, I'll select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades uh, collection of books they have, and usually it'll be tied to that month's JLI issue or something in that shape or form. My pick today might surprise you. Instead of promoting a JLI trade paperback, I've selected Justice League 3000 Trade Paperback, Volume 1, Yesterday Lives. 
Now, this is from the New 52 era, and uh, actually, the, the book is still currently on the stands. It, they've changed the name from Justice League 3000 to Justice League 3001, but it's the same series. And it takes place way in the year 3000, and it follows the Justice League of that era, which is Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and Green Lantern. And the strange thing is, they're sort of still the 21st century versions of those characters running around in the far future. And there's a big mystery behind that, and it, it gets explained eventually. It's a really fun comic. Now, you might be wondering why on earth I'm promoting a New 52 book when I'm talking about the old JLI from 30 years ago. But the reason why is this Justice League 3000 book is actually written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. Yeah, seriously. The guys who wrote JLI are writing Justice League 3000. I was stunned. I, I At first, when I heard about this book, I was not really that interested. But then I heard who the writers were, and I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. Folks, I love this comic so much. Now, the art, folks, by the way, is by Howard Porter, the guy that drew the Grant Morrison JLA run. So you've got amazing authors. You've got fantastic artwork. It's so much fun. As I mentioned, the series is still on the stands. Now, this this collection collects issues one through seven. But eventually, by the time they get to issue 15, if you look at the team, you know, you've still got those main five I mentioned, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern. But you've also got um, Guy Gardner, Fire, Ice, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle. I'm not kidding. I mean, basically what you've got is sort of the Justice League International in the year 3000 written by the same writers. So, folks, you really got to pick this up if you're not already getting it. The fact is you should be supporting Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus in their current work. I mean, yeah, we love their old stuff, but let's buy the stuff they're doing nowadays. So go out there, pick up this comic. I promise you won't be disappointed. You will find a lot of joy out of it. Now, this particular trade paperback is available on in-stock trades. It's 176 pages, full color. Normal retail price is $16.99. But on in-stock trades, you get, a, at least at the time of this recording, you get a 45% discount. So you can get this book for $9.34, and it is so much fun. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson on the JLI. Now, and I'm talking about the behind-the-scenes stuff, not what actually was taking place in the comic books itself. Some of this you might know, some of it you might not. And uh, I want to be very upfront and admit I'm not a JLI expert. I'm fairly knowledgeable, and I'm passionate about the era, but I'm not an expert. The history I'm going to share has mostly been cobbled together from various interviews I've read and listened to. At the end of the episode, I'll be sure to cite some of my sources for you bibliophiles. So it was the year 1986. Jerry Conway was the writer on Justice League of America and had been for over 10 years. At that point, they were two years into an experiment to try and revitalize the JLA by bringing in new untested characters. This was an era referred to as Justice League Detroit. They were trying to compete with the highly popular X-Men and New Teen Titans at that point. Unfortunately, the experiment wasn't really working from a sales perspective. Jerry Conway was suddenly off the JLA title, and the editor, a man by the name of Andy Helfer, remember that name, Andy Helfer had to find a replacement. During an interview, J.M. DeMatteis, which, by the way, he goes by the name Mark. Uh, not, not that I know him personally or anything, but that I've just read it. That's what he goes by. He doesn't go by J.M. And, and yes, that is apparently how you pronounce his last name. I asked him on Twitter. It's DeMatteis. So that's no guarantee I'm going to get continue to get it right. I am horrible at pronouncing words, so I'm just going to do my best here. So Mark DeMatteis said during an interview that he'd been bothering Andy Helfer for about a year to let him write JLA. So when Conway was gone, Helfer brought on DeMatteis to essentially close down this incarnation of the Justice League. He knew that the Justice League was going to be relaunched after the upcoming Legends miniseries, so he had to clear the decks. So DeMatteis was charged with getting rid of the Justice League Detroit. Boy, did he do that. In fact, he killed off two of my favorite characters, Steel and Vibe. Hmm. While DeMatteis was shutting down the old league, Helfer had to prepare for the new league that would come out of Legends. Andy Helfer said during an interview that Keith Giffen had been hounding him for the new Justice League book. So finally, Helfer just gave up and said, fine, Giffen, take it, it's yours. So if you look at those two situations, both DeMatteis and Giffen were hounding poor Andy Helfer. Poor guy, I tell you, had to work with these clowns. <laughs> um, so the book, it's got an editor, Andy Helfer, it's got a writer, Keith Giffen, the new series, now they need an artist. 
Kevin Maguire had been working for Marvel as part of a group called Romita's Raiders. These were production artists at Marvel doing art corrections. Kurt Busiek brought in some of Maguire's art samples, hoping to get him to draw a new ongoing series that was being developed by Busiek entitled Wildcard. They liked Maguire's stuff so much, they assigned him to both Wildcard and Justice League. Maguire drew the first issue of Wildcard, which apparently he still has the art for, and everyone realized he was not remotely fast enough to do two monthly books. So poor Busick got the short end of the straw. Wildcard got kind of lost in the process after it was downgraded from an ongoing series to a miniseries, then it was downgraded further to a one-shot, and finally Busick said, you know what, forget it. So he, so here he is, Busick, he finds this terrific artist for his own book, and actually managed to kill the book entirely. As we mentioned, Justice League Detroit was full of second stringers, and the new Justice League book was supposed to be a return to greatness. Editor Andy Helfer, writer Keith Giffen, and artist Kevin McGuire were hoping they'd get to work with the big guns of the DC Universe. Unfortunately, Superman was in the middle of his revamp with John Byrne, Wonder Woman was being revamped by George Perez, and Flash was being revamped by Mike Barron. And those editors, for those heroes, didn't want them appearing in team books while they were still trying to establish the characters themselves. So who did that leave for the new Justice League book? Well, they were told to use the characters that would come out of the upcoming Legends miniseries. And while they had a couple of heavy hitters on that team, uh, most of the folks they picked up were comprised of second stringers. While that didn't really bode well at first, turned out to probably be the best thing that could have happened to that book. Keith Giffen wrote the script for the first issue, but he wasn't terribly confident in his own script. So editor Andy Helfer brought in Mark DiMatteis to spruce up Giffen's script. And for subsequent issues, Giffen would write the plots, but he'd, he'd do them as these little comic books. He would draw it out. He would actually, you know, draw panels, kind of sketch it out, and he would put, you know, description of what was going on with the plot, and maybe even a little bit of dialogue if he had something in mind. And he just did a little mini-comic, and he would send that to DiMatteis, who then would get these and then would write a full script, including dialogue and stuff like that. Andy Helfer would get the script, and he would cut it down to a manageable size, because apparently the guys usually wrote too much material. That would then go to Kevin McGuire for pencils, someone else would ink it, typically Al Gordon at this point, and finally would end up with the letterer, the man who could work magic with way too many word balloons, Mr. Bob Lappin, who doesn't get nearly enough credit for his time with JLI. Both Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire have said in the early days of the book that they thought they were going to get fired. This book was very different than anything DC was publishing, and they were convinced people would hate it. And to be fair, according to Andy Helfer, there were people at DC who weren't very happy about JLI in those early days. Interestingly enough, Mark DiMatteis wanted to quit in those early days. He felt the job was too easy, and he was having too much fun. It didn't seem right to him that he should get paid for this. So he actually tried to quit. Thankfully, he came to his senses very quickly, realized he was having an absolute blast, and what a dream gig, so he, he stayed with the book. Now I'm going to transition a little bit from history to just some kind of general thoughts about the book. The interesting thing about this book is that it's it's a workplace comedy. It's like a sitcom, sort of like uh, The Office or Seinfeld, you know, a show about nothing. But this comic hit the stands two years before Seinfeld ever hit the television airwaves. When they started out, they didn't plan to create a humorous Justice League, or they didn't plan to create an important comic franchise. They were just trying to tell a good story. There was a lighter tone to it, but it wasn't a sitcom at first. In fact, when we cover the first issue in a little bit here, you'll be able to see that. According to Giffen, he credits Andy Helfer for encouraging more of the tongue-in-cheek bits in what he calls the lighter touch. After a few issues, the book became about what happens when the Justice League's not in front of the cameras, when they're not, you know, quote-unquote, on. One description was, it's what happens the panel after the last panel of the issue. So, you know, as you're reading it, we end up spending, like, more time with the with the heroes trying to figure out which night's going to be pizza night at the embassy versus, you know, them actually battling bad guys. Now, the name of this show is Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. And that implies that the series was all laughs. And that's not a fair assessment. Giffen and DiMatteis did a great job balancing the humor with the drama and the action. You really learn to care about these second-string characters. You laugh with them, and then that's what makes the tragedies, they're fairly infrequent, but the tragedies resonate so much more. Like, who could forget the story where Blue Beetle gets brainwashed? Oh my gosh, that was so powerful, just a total kick in the gut. 
Most fans will agree that the creative team really hit their stride with issue number five. That's the one-punch issue. And then everything clicked with issue number eight, which is the moving day. From then on, oh, just full steam ahead. Well, Giffen and DiMatteis wrote brilliant stories. A huge factor in the book's success from launch was Kevin McGuire's artwork. He's a master of facial expressions and body language. The best description I've heard applied to him was that his drawings brought out the best acting from the characters. And that's fair. The characters were legitimately acting. When you looked at them you, and you saw their body language or their facial expression, it was believable. You understood what was going on. Now, the Giffen and DiMatteis era, to me at least, felt like a really long run. It felt like a, sort of a golden age of comics, and it just went on forever. But in truth, it only lasted about five years, and it was a period of unbelievable expansion. You know, up to that point, the JLA title had been one solitary book for decades. Suddenly, there was Justice League America, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, there were specials, there was a Doctor Fate ongoing, there was a Mr. Miracle ongoing, a Martian Manhunter miniseries, just the list goes on and on. Also during this time, they had some amazing artists. We've already talked about Kevin McGuire, but, you know, they brought in folks like Adam Hughes, Bart Sears. I mean, it was just, oh, it was amazing. Now here we sit nearly 30 years later. Yeah, that's right. We're at 29 years right now. Next year will be our 30th anniversary, and we're still talking about this book. And the writing team of Giffen and DiMatteis is again writing an incarnation of the Justice League right now, Justice League 3001. Lots of people love the JLI. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already do. Lots of folks have found ways to you know, celebrate or commemorate the JLI. And, you know, this podcast is my effort to do that. And when you're comparing what I'm doing to what other folks have done, you know, just bear in mind this is going to take five years. I've committed five years of my life to this project. So, just saying. Anyway, uh, right now we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a couple of podcast promos, which are essentially commercials for other podcasts. And on the other side, me and my guest host for this episode, Mr. Ryan Daly, we're going to look at Justice League number one. Superman, Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel, Firestorm, The Crimson Avenger, Batman, Halo, Guy Gardner, The Sandman, Shadow Lass, Dollman, The Star-Spangled Kid, The Flash, The Phantom Stranger, Power Girl, Hawkman, Fury, The Challengers of the Unknown, Nightwing, The Whip, Johnny Thunder, The Suicide Squad, Deadman, The Spectre, Warlord, Amazing Man, Our Man, Adam Strange, Doctor Occult, The Doom Patrol, Captain Comet, Creeper, Green Lantern, Uncle Sam, The Guard, Batgirl, Dr. Mid-Jonah Hex, Black Con, The Manhunter, The Guardians of the Florops, Blue Devil, Dr. Fate, The Legion of Super, The Secret Origins Podcast, covering every issue of DC's Secret Origins comic from the 1980s. Hosted by Ryan Daly and a multitude of guests from the podcast and blogging community. Secret Origins Podcast. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. 
All right, and we're back. Now, folks, please help me in welcoming to the Embassy a podcast legend in his own mind, a man who needs no introduction and, quite frankly, probably doesn't deserve one, so I'm not going to give him one. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ryan Daly. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Embassy, Ryan. How you doing, bud? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. I've waited a long, long time to be on this show. Me too. Me too. Uh, this thing's been in the planning stages for quite a while. No, I meant during your whole like 13-minute preamble getting up to this point. I was holding my breath, <laughs> waiting for you to let me talk. Unfortunately, it didn't work because you're still here because uh, I don't know that anybody can hold their breath 13 minutes outside of Aquaman. So this is kind of a historic thing. I mean, you are the very first guest on the Justice League International Blahaha podcast. This was a very hotly contested spot. A lot of people asked to guest star. In fact, I have more guest stars lined up than I have issues to cover, so I'm trying to figure out how to juggle all that right now. But a lot of people want issue number one. And so you know, there was this rigid audition process a lot of people went through. And finally, what it came down to is the fact that you have more incriminating blackmail on me than anyone else. So congratulations. You should be proud of yourself. I am proud of myself. I am proud of those photos. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Keep them locked up, buddy. Just telling you. And the negatives. Anyway, folks, uh, if you want to join us in discussing Justice League number one on the interwebs, please, on the social medias, use our hashtag, which is poundfwpodcasts. That does end in an S, podcasts. Or, if you want, you can just tag JLI Podcast. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter with that handle. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the conversation. And in future episodes, we'll read your feedback. Ryan, before we get started, I need to ask you a question. And I think it's going to be a question I'll ask all of my future co-hosts. What is your own personal origin story with the Justice League International? I think the first time I encountered this sort of incarnation of the Justice League and and that's that's a weird kind of loaded term because, as we'll eventually explore, this Justice League went through many incarnations, many different titles. Um, but I think the first time I sort of found this version would have been in the Death of Superman trade paperback. Oh, wow. Uh, so now I got that right after – right when that came out, so 92-ish, I think. Yeah. So still, I mean, about six years after the series premiered. But I wasn't reading DC Comics in the 80s. I didn't really start collecting comics en masse until 1990. I wasn't big on DC at the time. I always liked those DC heroes that I loved from the Super Friends and the Super Powers. But getting to DC Comics took me a lot longer. And once I finally did start in, you know, really diving into these heroes and their stories, which was around the mid-2000s, Everywhere I heard, like, whether it was blogs or message boards, everything always came back to, you gotta read the, the JL, the Justice League International, that Giffen to Mateus run. It's so good. And I was like, alright, but that wasn't really the Justice League I wanted. I always wanted <laughs> that, that premier, you know, Justice League from the satellite era that I recognized from the cartoons and the toys, the, the heroes who are larger than life, that original pantheon. Those were my Justice League characters. And to see this Justice League that's, okay, it's Batman and it's, it's who, wait, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, okay, these are guys that are funny, but are they really the A-list Justice League characters? I don't know. So I always kind of felt like the, these characters were more of what I imagined Batman and the Outsiders should have been. <laughs> I could kind of see that, I guess, yeah. Like, like I still want, like, not knocking this series because it was so great, but it was, it felt very much like a niche book. Instead of the the flagship title of of the universe, um, so it, it did. It took me a little while to get into it, but once I read it, I was like, okay, 
uh, I'm just going to accept this for the kind of story it was, and it was very enjoyable. I've I've still only read mm, whatever's whatever is in the first four trade paperbacks of this series. Okay, so. 20, 30, 30 issues, maybe. Um, I, think there's, I think there's only six trade paperbacks so far, so you're not too far behind. Really enjoy the characters, loved them, but yeah, in terms of when did I, what was my origin, I didn't really get into the series until about seven, eight years ago. And was there, once you read the Death of Superman stuff, was there a, a jumping on point where you went back to the to the Giffen, D. Matea stuff, where you did you jump in at number one? Did you go back and just pick up whatever you found? How, how did where did you where did you launch from? Oh, it launched. I it was the it was the trades. I mean, wh- okay. when I read that Giffen to the, when I read the Death of Superman trade, first of all, I I picked that up because I was happy Superman was killed off because as a kid in the nineties, wow, as a, a kid in the nineties, no, I was that kid who thought Superman was lame and get rid of him, bring on X Force and Cable. Oh, I was that kid. I was that primer. You had the problem with the 1990s. Exactly. Like 13-year-old me, or however I was, like in 1992, 1993, I would be, you know, champing at the bit to see the Batman versus Superman movie with Batman just beating the stuffing out of Superman. That's where I was at that point. And when they brought him back to life, I was like, oh, that's kind of dumb. At least he's got longer hair now, so that's a little (laughs) bit cooler. Um, oh gosh, I'm so embarrassed of myself at that age. Um, I'm embarrassed for you. Yeah, and all of our all of our listeners should be. But after that, one like a year later, when Zero Hour came out, I checked out some of the Justice League uh, at the time, Justice League of America issues around then. But it was still, I, I didn't have that in. I just didn't. I wasn't into the characters then. So when I decided to go back and read the this version, the Justice League International, it was just picking up the trades. I got that first one, which was the first seven issues. Yep. Um, and I was like, mm, yeah, this is a good investment. I'll continue with this. Okay. All right. It's I, I could get why it's tough because the first seven issues are not they're they're great, but they're not where everything's firing in all thrusters. They're not. No. Although classic moments that everyone remembers. Most right. of those, I mean, there's some, certainly, but most of them happen starting in issue eight and forward, movie yeah. day. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, you know, sort of similarly for me, uh, I, w- I was late to the JLI party as well. For me, Justice League Detroit was my first ongoing Justice League book. Mm-hmm. I-, I seem to always come in and, and people tease me for like the worst periods of following a, a book. Like I followed the Brown Jacketed Avengers. That was my first Avengers that I really followed on a monthly basis. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said between Justice League Detroit and Brown Jacketed Avengers, actually, but all being second stringer. So I followed Justice League Detroit. I, I, you know, when you, when you first follow something, you get invested. You know, it's, that's, that's your team the first time you read it. So when, absolutely. So when Justice League Detroit fell apart, I, I was devastated. You know, by issue 261, which is the last episode, last issue, you know, they've killed Vibe, they've killed Steel, Gypsy runs away. I was absolutely heartbroken. I, it's fair to say, like you, I knew who the Super Friends were. I knew who the Classic Jelly were. I, I always always knew of them, but they weren't my league. So the series ends. I see the little blurb that says, coming soon, issue number one of the new Justice League. And it says, you know, a return to greatness. And sort of like you, I looked at the characters and I'm like, really? It came out and I actually missed it. They sold out. I wasn't able to get my hands on issue number one. And so then I, I hear through the grapevine, it's the funny Justice League. And I'm all of 14, 15 years old at this point. And I probably, you know, it's 1987, so I had probably just finished reading, I don't know, either Dark Knight Returns or, or something along those lines. You know, I wanted my heroes gritty. I wanted dark. So hearing it was funny, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take a pass. I actually skipped it consciously. 
I'd pick up the occasional issue, like when they did the Millennium crossover, uh, or the, uh, which was nine, issue nine and ten, or the recruitment issue, which is 24. And then I heard that the Justice League Europe was about to come out, and I heard they were going to be more serious. They were going to be more super heroics, and less ha ha ha, less blah ha ha, I should say. And so, I decided actively I was going to collect Justice League Europe. And the art was Bart Sears, you know, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I was loving Justice League Europe, picked up every issue, and I still would drop in on the Justice League America title once in a while, like during the crossovers, the Teasdale Imperative, I picked up those. I was reading the spinoffs, I was reading Dr. Fate, I was reading Mr. Miracle. It, it just, for some reason, the main Justice League book, I had like a stigma for me, I wouldn't get it. It was issue 42 that finally did it for me, and it was all because of Starman. At that point, I had been reading a bunch of what you would call either dark or mature comics. I mean, it's a laughable term, but that's what you called them back then. I was reading Sandman and Doom Patrol mm-hmm. and Animal Man and Batman and Daredevil and the five years later, Legion of Superheroes and just the, the darker comics. And I don't know, maybe I just sat down and read too many of them one day. I don't know. But I felt overwhelmed by it. I needed something sort of light and fun, and I happened to pick up the Starman issue that month, which was... Starman, I want to say it's issue 26. It was, it had the, it had a version of the Golden Age Starman on it. It was actually his son, but either way, it had a JSA connection. And I love me some JSA. So I picked it up and I loved it. It was super fun. It was upbeat. It was what a superhero comic was meant to be. Just a great fun read. Well, the same time, Justice League uh, America number 42 had Starman on the cover. So I picked it up and that was the first time that it clicked for me. I actually, I got it. All the jokes were funny. The book was fun. It was light. And at that point, I was in. So it's pretty you know, kind of close to the end of the run. But either way, I, I read 42, and I immediately went back and picked up all the back issues, and I was totally on board. Loved, loved that era. But, yep, I was late to the party, too. Okay, Ryan. Now, big question. Two sides of the question. One is, who is your favorite Justice League International characters? And what qualifies you to be talking about the Justice League International, specifically characters, here on the podcast? Well, first question, I have to separate that make the distinction of my favorite characters who were part of the Justice League International. Actually, before that, it was Batman, Black Canary, and Martian Manhunter. Mm. Um, the three characters who you'll notice were all part of the previous incarnation of Justice League. They're, they're part of the original group or the satellite era that spun off. Um, those are just three of my – I mean, all three of those are in my top ten favorite DC heroes. But – they're not necessarily my favorite characters within the book as they're presented. Um, Batman, as you'll see, is presented a very specific type of way that can rub some people the wrong way, almost as be almost as abrasive as Guy Gardner at times. Mm-hmm. Um, Martian Manhunter, I thought they always wrote, given Demetrius, wrote him very respectfully, um, but was frequently just the straight man. Black Canary the same way too. So within the Justice League International stories that I have read, I think my favorite characters were probably Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle. Hmm. Uh, Blue Beetle started off, I mean, as we said, you know, from the beginning, the, the book was kind of a work in progress for the first six or seven issues while the guys were really finding their voice and finding the vision for what the book would be. And Blue Beetle was very much just Wash from Serenity or Firefly. If you <laughs> it. He's just the pilot who makes, who cracks wise. That's really all he did for the first couple issues. Once they built his relationship with Booster Gold, they, they found a way to use him. And then Mr. Miracle, again, it took them a little while to develop him. But once they found these ways of integrating his familiarity with Apocalypse and that old lifestyle and Big Barda into the thing, I just, I really like that character. All right. 
So, Ryan, I, I ask again then, what is your specific connection to the characters of the Justice League? Or, or maybe another way to put it is, why did I ask you to appear so early in the run of the uh, Justice League podcast? Well, I am quite the fan of the character Black Canary, who was one of the premier members of the team in the first year. Uh, I've devoted a blog to her in the past and a podcast that is going to be part of the Fire and Water network of podcasts. So it felt appropriately. And quite frankly, I had to get you in pretty early because Black Canary doesn't hang around all that long. She does not. It's a a shame. Yep. She went on to, I don't want to say bigger and better things, but she just went on to darker things (laughs) in the world of Green Arrow. So one of the things that has come up quite a bit in preparation for this show is the consideration as to whether I would talk about Justice League Detroit and the Legends miniseries before talking about Justice League International. Because if you look at it, really, Justice League, the, the end of Justice League Detroit, like that last four-issue storyline, and the Legends miniseries are the genesis of the JLI comic. They're sort of explaining the reasons of how, they, how we got here. And part of me thought about doing it that way, starting off with those. And then then I kind of got to the decision that I really needed to focus on the core topic. You know, the Giffen, DiMatteis era of the Justice League International. That's People that come to the show, that's what they're looking for. That's what they want to see. If I covered Justice League Detroit and Legends first, it'd probably be like six months before I ever got to cover the first JLI story. And I don't want JLI fans to wait six months to hear JLI coverage on the JLI podcast. It just doesn't make any sense. So, and, and these stories stand alone. You don't actually have to know the history prior to this to make them work. So, I, that's why the decision I made. But with that said, it's fair to say we will probably cover Justice League Detroit and Legends on a future episode on one of those meanwhile episodes that will fit sort of in between the other episodes. Because they do merit talking about, but I don't want to delay the coverage of the Bwahaha fun. All right, and now on to a segment I'm calling Monitor Duty. Everyone remembers those segments in the in the comics where somebody would be stuck on monitor duty and how much they hated it. Well, I'm using the, inter- the a looser interpretation of monitor duty. I, we're not monitoring the the safety of the world. We are in fact monitoring the rest of the comics fear. I thought it'd be nice to have a segment where we talk about where the other members of the Justice League are appearing in DC Comics on the same month when this comic was released. So I'll run through these fairly quickly. The same month that Justice League number one came out, you could have found uh, Captain Marvel over in Shazam: The New Beginning number two. So that many, so I thought the miniseries was over by now. I didn't realize they were only on issue number two at this point. And this is, uh, of course, by Roy and, and Danette Thomas, and Tom Mandrake did the, did the art. Uh, this is the second thing in a row that and this came up in my Secret Origins podcast, plug for Secret Origins podcast. One of the things when Roy Thomas had his opportunities to write Captain Marvel, he brought on some artists that were, had, I think had a much more mature and somewhat edgier tone. For a character like Captain Marvel, great. I mean, Tom Mandrake, great artist, but I would never in a million years plug him for that series. Yeah, every, and when Tom Mandrake draws, everyone lives in the shadows. Exactly. And Captain America, Captain, Captain America, <laughs> sorry, Captain Marvel is supposed to be he's out in the sun. He's bright. He's shiny. Uh, other characters appearing, Batman, of course. You know, at this point in his history, he only had two monthly titles. Could you imagine a time when Batman only had two monthly titles? Preposterous. <laughs> so Batman number 407, which was Batman Year One Part 4. That's how early Justice League came out. Year One was still being published. Yep. That's a mind blower. Yep. By Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli, still one of my favorite Batman stories. Uh, that same month would have been Detective Comics 574. I believe that was the last issue by Mike Barr and Alan Davis. 
because if my memory serves me, year two picked up the very next month after year one. Oh wow, I didn't remember that. Okay, I think well, so. Well, this is this is the one where Jason Todd gets shot by the Mad Hatter, and Batman's sort of reflecting on his post-crisis origins, and yep. Leslie Tompkins how she fits into that. But the cover is 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 Batman holding Jason's like limp body. It sh- looks very much like the last part of Death in the Family. Yeah. When yeah, I yeah. saw the cover, I was like, wait a minute, Death in the Family didn't come out by this point. So yeah. actually, I need to correct that. Uh, Alan Davis's issue would have been the one after this because he drew the first issue of Year Two, and then he was succeeded by everyone's favorite. Todd McFarlane. Hey, I still like Todd McFarlane at this point in history, in 1987. <laughs> Everyone can say what they want, and uh, I, I didn't mind his stuff. All right, then we get Blue Beetle, who uh, at this point, was issue number 12 was on the shelf. It had guest starring the Teen Titans, of course, by Len Wein and Paris Collins. Good stuff. Now, a couple shout-outs to future JLI members. I'm not going to go too far into the future. I'm not going to, like, pull Metamorpho and Power Girl and people from, like, Just League Europe, but just the immediate, you know, characters that we're going to sign on pretty quickly. Booster Gold number 16 came was on the shelves this month. And interestingly, I, I don't I don't remember this issue specifically, but apparently, according to the recaps I read, Maxwell Lord actually appears in the issue and offers Booster Justice League membership. So wow. I'd be very interested to go back and read that. Of course, that's by the legendary Dan Jurgens. Then Captain Adam number three was on the shelves. They're still establishing his personal history at that point, pretty early in the run. Kerry Bates and Pat Broderick, of course. Then Hawkman number 10 featured future members Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, written, done by Barbara Kiesel, Dan Mishkin, and Richard Howell. And interestingly enough, that same month they were having a crossover with Action Comics number 588, which included, of course, those characters in a John Byrne story. So that was a nice little crossover between the two books. Yep. And finally, the last one, which is only tangentially worth mentioning, but it's interesting, Watchmen number 9. So again, going back in history, sort of a mind-blower thinking about Watchmen as a monthly series and not a trade paperback. But Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, and of course it featured altered versions of the Charlton classic characters, Blue Beetle and Captain Atom. I've never heard of that one. Was that... Did that... I don't think I don't think they ever reprinted it. It was just kind of a one. Okay. I think it was like uh, Watchmen and Screamer and Slash Maraud. They all just kind of vanished. And the vanished. weird. I think, right. Yeah, that was. In the- hey, the okay. weird had Justice League International. We're going to have to talk about it at some point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> all right, that is Monitor Duty. Now on to the issue. All right. Justice League issue one had a cover date of May 1987, but if you asked Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics when the issue was released, the site would say February 5th of 1987, about 29 years ago last month. The first issue, titled Born Again, was written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Kevin McGuire, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Bob Lappin, and colored by Gene D'Angelo. McGuire and Austin provided the instantly classic, frequently imitated cover, which sported a price tag of 75 cents. And Andy Helfer was the editor of the book. Hell yeah, he was. Uh, the story opens with Green Lantern alone in the control room of the Justice League of America's original headquarters in Happy Harbor, Rhode Island. This, however, is not the Green Lantern fans of the Justice League have come to expect thus far. It's not Hal Jordan. It's not even Jon Stewart. This is Guy Gardner, and he tells us right there on page one that things are going to be different from here on. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Guy Gardner. I'm a Green Lantern. Correction, I'm the Green Lantern. None of those other jerks can hold a candle to me. No doubt you're wondering why I called you all here today. Simple. I'm declaring myself Commander-in-Chief of the spanking new Justice League. Any objections? I didn't think so. Of course, course, Guy's not actually saying this to anybody. He's all alone. This is just the speech he's rehearsing in his head. And he's feeling very confident in himself when the teleporter tube activates and Black Canary arrives. 
Unlike Guy, Black Canary is a veteran member of the team, and walking back into the old headquarters, she can't help but feel a little sentimental and a little gloomy for past members who have died. Guy makes fun of her sensitivity and compassion and drops a couple of pop culture references that firmly date this issue. Then, two new faces step out of the transporter tube. Scott Free, better known as Mr. Miracle, the world's greatest escape artist, and his diminutive stage manager, Oberon. Mr. Miracle seems less than enthusiastic about joining the team, but Oberon has convinced him that it's a good idea, because they can use it to boost sales of Scott's act and get rich. Eager to press the flesh and insinuate himself among the team, Oberon tries to shake Guy's hand, and THE Green Lantern replies, What's the matter, Sneezy? The other six dwarves couldn't make it? (laughs) Oberon storms off, leaving Mr. Miracle and Black Canary to lament the fact that they're sharing the same breathing space as Gardner. Suddenly, a caped powerhouse of a superhero flies into the room, like a bird, or a plane, or a... No, wait, it's not Superman. It's the world's mightiest mortal, Captain Marvel. The captain didn't use the transporter tube. He came in through the main gate, flying over a huge crowd of press reporters and spectators looking for a glimpse of the new Justice League. The next two members to arrive offer opposing viewpoints on whether the press coverage is good or bad. Blue Beetle thinks the cameras and the questions can help elevate the League's image. Of course, since Blue Beetle was new to the DC Universe and had a brand new ongoing series to support at this time, it's no wonder he wanted the tabloids feeding Blue Beetle mania. (laughs) John Jones, the Manhunter from Mars, and one of the founding members of the Justice League of America, thinks the invasive media scrutiny will hurt the team. John isn't very trusting at this point in his career. He's a more bitter Martian, having survived the deaths of several of his teammates on the previous incarnation of the team. Having already dismissed Black Canary's sentimentality, Guy Gardner has no interest in Martian Manhunter's grief especially for the likes of Commander Steel and Vibe. Mm. He uses his powering to conjure a gavel and calls the first meeting of the new Justice League to order. Cut to Washington, D.C. A man named Maxwell Lord enters the office of Innovative Concepts, where he's greeted by his secretary, Ms. Wootenhofer. She remarks that Max seems to be in a good mood, and he confirms this while sitting down in his office and tuning into 18 television screens, most of which are covering the new Justice League. While watching the TVs, Max scribbles an idea on a notepad. At first, the idea is just the name, Justice League of America. But as the various news stations offer different spins on the world's reaction to the newly formed League, Max's idea changes, and he crosses off the word America. Back at the League headquarters, things are not going well. Black Canary and Guy Gardner are in each other's face, with her advocating the honor and tradition of the Justice League, and Guy advocating the honor of... Well, himself and whatever he wants them to do. Oberon demands that Guy apologize to Dinah. Instead, Guy rings up a broom and brushes the little man off. Canary kicks Guy's wrist, disrupting his power ring, and calls him insufferable. And this is from a woman who dates Green Arrow, folks. (laughs) Guy takes her aggression as a sign that she secretly wants to sleep with him, naturally. Martian Manhunter steps in, separating them before Dinah takes another swing, but Guy Gardner uses the ring to pick Jean up by the cape, comparing him to the jolly green giant, and then shouts to the rest of the team that he's in charge, and everything will be fine if they shut up and do what he says. Captain Marvel makes a plea for teamwork and respect, which Guy mocks, and really it's kind of hard not to. Marvel sounds like a cross between a hippie and a fifth-grade hall monitor in this scene. But Oberon has as little interest in teamwork as Guy does, and he jumps on Guy's back, wrapping his powerful, tiny fists around Guy's head. (laughs) 
Elsewhere in the headquarters, Batman and Dr. Fate walk into the control room together. They both agree that neither one of them is ideally suited for working with teams, based on their nature, but both felt a sort of calling, a sense of obligation to be there. Dr. Fate thinks it's karma. For Batman, it's more of a civic responsibility. Not the same one that drives him to fight criminals, but rather to save the superheroes from themselves. Fate and Batman enter the control room to find every other member ganging up on Guy Gardner, who's using his ring to blast Captain Marvel and Man- Martian Manhunter. Dr. Fate volunteers to use his impressive magic to separate the combatants, but Batman stops him. He'll end the fight his own way. Batman walks through their midst, and the members one by one stop fighting, like kids horsing around who try to act innocent as soon as an adult comes over. At last, Batman gets in Guy's face, and with the same cold, quiet efficiency he uses to fight crime, he simply tells Guy to sit down. And Guy thinks about it. He considers defying Batman, considers lashing out, considers mouthing off, but he doesn't do either. He sits down, and he shuts up. Batman didn't need a whole speech to declare himself the leader of the Justice League. All he needed was two words. Sit down. And then he calls the meeting to real order. (laughs) I'll pick it up from there. At this point, some time passes. Uh, They don't tell specifically how much, but when we rejoin the League, we find the Justice League members all sitting around the conference table while Batman finishes up reading their charter. The Justice League certainly loves their rules and procedures. That is a callback to the old Justice League series. Most of the team looks horribly bored. Batman states that he doesn't appreciate their indifference, and he also wants the team to maintain a low profile until they've sort of gelled and their teamwork is really in place. Then, uh, during that scene, we also get the introduction of the dreaded monitor duty, as poor Black Canary is stuck watching the monitors, and Batman doesn't understand why she's even questioning it. (laughs) Meanwhile, over in New York, we're introduced to Dr. Kimio Hoshi, the famed scientist who is secretly the superhero Dr. Light. In her civilian disguise, she's preparing to make a presentation to the United Nations General Assembly on one of her new inventions. The trouble is, at this point for her, she's in the restroom dealing with some faulty tech. She's got this handheld disc that keeps beeping. She's desperately trying to turn it off, even hilariously beating it on the counter. And then in a flashback with just about the coolest rounded corners I've ever seen, we learn that she was given the device by a mysterious man offering her a position in the new Justice League team. Back in the present, the beeping disc, which is her Justice League communicator, continues to, well, it beeps. She decides to just muffle it in her purse and heads out of the restroom. She is shocked to discover that a group of terrorists have taken control of the United Nations General Assembly, and it's holding them hostage. So she discreetly uses her recently acquired Justice League signal device to send an SOS. At the Justice League headquarters, they receive Dr. Light's signal. And they're sort of perplexed by this because she's not even a member of the team. Given the threat to the UN, Batman mobilizes the League. So much for maintaining a low profile. Batman instructs Captain Marvel and Dr. Fate to fly ahead while the rest of the team takes Blue Beetle's bug to the UN. Guy Gardner argues the decision with Batman, but the Dark Knight verbally puts Guy in his place. Again. Upon arrival, Guy Gardner seals off the UN building with a construct. Blue Beetle then maintains communications from the bug, while all the other members sneak into the UN building. And throughout this, members of the team continue to question Batman's orders, which is frustrating him to no end. Inside, the terrorist leader, uh, we find out, has a bomb grafted onto his chest, which will explode if his heart stops. 
the leader is ranting to the UN General Assembly, and while he's impassioned, his position is sort of generic. He simply wants the countries of the world to stop ignoring the impoverished and the oppressed. Batman realizes that something doesn't quite add up with these terrorists. They have outdated equipment, and they're poorly trained. The Justice League goes into action, Batman leading the way, and snarkily telling everyone else what to do, and they're assisted by Dr. Light. The League easily defeats the terrorists. Then it's down to Batman and the terrorist leader. At this point, the leader reminds everyone that if he dies, the bomb in his chest will detonate and destroy the building, killing everyone. Batman then basically calls the leader's bluff, and he orders everyone in the Justice League to evacuate the room, leaving the terrorist leader to do as he wishes. So the leader picks up a gun, he's planning to kill himself, and he's thinking that the resulting explosion will kill everyone in the building. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of screaming, again, a lot of Justice League members questioning Batman. Then some more time passes, and the UN building's still standing. And we're informed through a series of news reports that the terrorist leader was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot. However, the bomb did not detonate. Turns out the terrorist thugs were actually washed-up 1960s radicals, and the leader was simply a drifter with no ties to any political activist group. And we find out the Justice League was extremely reluctant to speak to the press. In the very end, we discover that Maxwell Lord is in some way responsible for the quote-unquote terrorist attack. And he's gloating about the terrorist leader killing himself, yet Max had the bomb firing pin the whole time. So we can infer from that that Max arranged the terrorists, and he also arranged for them to fail. Next issue, make war no more! And that was Justice League number one. Woof! Hooray! Yes! What'd you think, Ryan? It's a very impressive issue uh, for a first outing. There's a whole lot going on here to to bring all of these characters together for a book that doesn't you know really kick off the action until like the the third act. It does a great job of just giving you what you want from this character. It, it's it's a fun it's a fun first issue. It, it really does sort of set the stage for the rest mm-hmm. of the series. A lot of people talk about how the first issue is sort of different from the rest of the series because the rest of the series, as time goes on, it sort of becomes a sitcom. But if you really look at this, a lot of the meat is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the characters interacting, the characters arguing, hanging out of the embassy, discussing, you know, arguing about policy and procedure and who's in charge. A lot of those early jokes and, and, and stylization of the characters and the way they interact is there in this first issue. So I think, I think it's a great number one because you get all of that. You, sta- you get a pretty good feel for who all the characters are. The, the art, we'll talk about the art in a bit. The art is absolutely gorgeous. And then, as, as you mentioned, the action is in the third act, and it's wrapped up fairly quickly. You know, even though those, those terrorists weren't really much of a challenge, you still got to see everyone in action. You got to see people using their powers. It was fantastic. I think what they wisely did was put everybody in, and they, they introduced people very smartly. It's, it, it is somewhat like a sitcom or even like a play where you start with just one person on stage, and then one by one you introduce a new character, and we get a little bit of who they are, and then introduce another. And the, the way the conflict just sort of builds, the more these people walk to the point where you get to the halfway point and you're like there is no possible way these people can function together as a team they can't handle any crisis and by the end of the issue you see okay this is what they need to overcome they need to get out of their own way in order to defuse this crisis and they made it work well it's batman pulls them together because yeah. they're dysfunctional until he shows up Mm-hmm. And he forces them into a fighting unit, even though they're challenging him the whole way. And it, it, it's almost funny how he's sort of bewildered. He doesn't even understand why they're questioning him. It's it's an interesting debate whether or not Batman is a good leader, because you can argue very much. I don't I don't know why this comparison came to mind, but I just thought of the Transformers 
Batman doesn't rule like Optimus Prime. He's not going to inspire loyalty out of like respect and compassion and and good example. He's more like Megatron. He's more like the supervillain leader. He's just going to bark orders at them, and if people don't follow along, he's gonna slap them down, and do it himself if he needs to. But or or, or he just won't work any argument. Well, fe- fear, fear is one of the biggest things in his utility belt. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a tyrant. <laughs> he's a jerk. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and you you said the comparison earlier at some point, um, and I don't remember if that was off air or on air to be honest. But we were talking about it. I mean, Batman's almost as much of a jerk as Guy Gardner in this series. Mm-hmm. And it, and you don't see it till later. And then as time goes on, you know, Batman. Sorry, spoilers for a thirty year old comic. Batman steps down as leader later in right. a series about seven issues in. And from there on, he's a little bit more like playing a straight man for jokes. Yeah, yeah. Still getting stuff done, but uh, it's, it's interesting. He's a really interesting character the way he's portrayed here. Right. Now, I want to talk about the art a little bit. Let's talk about the cover, first of all. You mentioned it. It is, it is one of the most iconic comic covers of the 1980s and 1990s. And you're right, was aped over and over. And still to this day, mm-hmm. you see a lot of artists doing commissions of whatever the topic might be in these same poses. I would bet this is easily in the top five most replicated or most homaged covers ever created. Now, some of that is that Maguire himself redid a version of this cover himself three or four times throughout the, throughout the history of this series. But like, I think of this cover, I think of uh, like the the version of a superhero holding uh, the dead woman in his arms, whether it's Cyclops holding Phoenix from the old X Men or Superman holding Supergirl from Crisis, you know the the same sort of iconic poses. Uh, this is one of those that's got to be one of the most aped and most replicated like images of a group shot you'll ever see. Yeah, even if you just look in the in the mythos of Justice League. It gets used probably five or six times. Mm-hmm. You know, between this one and issue twenty-four, and then you know the Justice League Antarctica, which is just hilarious, right. and even even the Justice League role-playing game source book. I mean, it's just over and over this same style gets used, and it's it's lovely. And each one is is super fun. I think somewhere along the lines, I'm going to try and post as many of these things as I can find in one post so everyone can see them all at some point. And you got to think, I mean, like over two hundred and fifty Justice League it covers have been done before. Nothing ever looked anything like this. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's not an action thing. It's a, it's a posed group shot. It's like the, the angriest family portrait you can imagine. It's the, Ol- it's the Olin Mills of the Justice League. <laughs> and it's just all attitude. Yeah. With that smirk and the, the word balloon with Guy Gardner that just sets it up perfectly. It's, it's like daring you not to look at it. It's it's beautiful. It's a masterwork just with this one piece of art for a guy who had done virtually nothing before this. Right. I know he done. You know he worked for uh, Ramita's Raiders and then comes over here does Wildcard, which never, as far as I know, never even got published. And then boom, he's Justice League. Amazing, <sighs> unbelievable. It's also funny that the, the microcosm of this team that's on the cover here. This this team never really exists. As it no, is portrayed it here. Because we didn't really mention in the recap, but Dr. Fate disappears right before the battle with the terrorists. He just yep. leaves. 
And, and one of the characters says, oh, by the way, Dr. Fate left. He says you would understand. Yep. The Batman is like, what? So Dr. Fate's gone. Dr. Light never participated with the team in costume. She right. quits by issue four. You know, Captain Marvel's gone by issue seven. So Captain Marvel out. Dr. Fate out. Dr. Light out. Black Canary's out after, what, maybe eight issues, ten issues, somewhere? Uh, she's around till 13. She's around to the Suicide Squad crossover. Okay. So it's it's just sort of amazing that this team, is, is as iconic as this image is, really didn't hang together very long. Mm-hmm. In fact, when when all this got started, Giffen and Dimitris didn't know that they weren't going to get to keep Captain Marvel. As far as it, they, apparently Captain Marvel was just on loan to them, but no one told them that. <laughs> right. So they were having a lot of fun with the character, and he got yanked away from them. Now, it's fair to say uh, his character was portrayed fairly differently here than elsewhere. Yeah, and it's uh, it's something that they did a lot was they they wrote they catered the characters in this book to oftentimes fit whatever scene they needed or or the particular joke they were going for. Captain Marvel is a character I don't particularly like their version of him. Um, he's, he's basically the straw man to make Guy Gardner's jokes work. It, it was something that continued in the post-crisis version of Captain Marvel, where when he was the superhero, he was still very much that Billy Batson child-like character. And it was a way to distinguish him from Superman, but I never really liked that. But I think they, they dial that up to 11 in this series when they, when they write the character. I think it gets better as it goes along. Like in issues, I don't know, I think it's like issue six, he's interacting with Guy Gardner quite a bit. In fact, he gets possessed and is actually mm-hmm. evil for an issue. I like the way he he evolves as the character in this run, even though it's fairly short. Looking at, again, looking at the group of characters, this particular cast, again, coming about a year after Crisis on Infinite Earths or whatever. So you've had all of these different companies and these different universes all smashed together. And what we have now, you've got... Batman, Martian Manhunter, and Black Canary representing the old guard, essentially. Mm-hmm. You've got Dr. Fate from what was Earth 2 and the Justice Society, the Golden Age representative. You've got Captain Marvel from Fawcett Comics, who, yeah, DC had bought them and brought them in, but that was really in his own universe. Blue Beetle had been a Charlton character until about six minutes before this. <laughs> You got Mr. Miracle with the uh, the Kirby uh, fourth world characters and the world of Apocalypse bringing into this. Doctor Light, a legacy of a villain now turned into a hero from Crisis. It's just this weird, like we're gonna throw all of these disparate ideas into one blender. That's why I think this is Batman and the Outsiders. Mm-hmm. Like this would be the team that Batman puts together if the original League got possessed by Starro or some other kind of alien life form that brainwashed everybody because they're so oddball, they're so outside of the box. Batman wouldn't put the team together that's like uh, sort of in within the New 52 how the Justice League of America was formed to specifically fight every member of the Justice yeah. League. I think that would be a little bit too obvious for Batman. He would think of the somebody who you'd never imagine. He would bring in Plastic Man for something. You make a great point about all the various worlds coming together. I hadn't really broken it down in that way in my mind before. And, and, and of course, Guy Gardner was the other one. Is mm-hmm. It's not the Green Lantern you know. It's, a, it's, yep. a, it's the Green Lantern that no one wants to hang out with. So it's, <laughs> it, it makes for a really interesting group. Now, I took us off track. We... we I said I wanted to talk about the art and then immediately went to talking about characters just because I'm so excited about this thing and all, all ADD about it. 
But I do want to talk about the art. We talked about where Kevin McGuire came from. Considering that he was new with this. Now, Keith Giffen did do the breakdowns. Yeah. Which might explain the way the panels are done. Because it's very interesting panel design all through the first issue. You get only one full-page splash. That's it. It's the one with Guy Gardner giving that speech you read in the beginning. Then you get a lot of nine-panel grids, which was very Giffen at this point in his time. You get a lot of ten-panel grids. Uh, not pa- grids, but ten-panel pages. And you get a, the, the least amount of panels on any one page was one page with four. And that was really to make way for half a page splash of Batman. And that's probably just due to the amount of exposition Batman had to give in that, because it's really just him boring everyone. Now, there is one page I counted that had 13 panels. It's towards the end. It's the one that used all the little TVs with the newscasters yep. conveying yep, information. Yep. And I don't... I don't remember if that was already a trope at this point or if that is something that was popularized by Dark Knight Returns. My gut tells me it was popularized by Dark Knight Returns, having the newscaster with sort of the rounded TVs and the blocks of text. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you I don't know if you have any memory of this before then. I mean, when I look at that page, I think that looks like a George Perez layout. Hmm. But I I mean, in terms of using using a television monitor screen and then having the text right above it. You're right. That that does look very much like Frank Miller's design in a lot of Dark Knight Returns. But with the shifting with the different layers and then the different kind of shaped boxes, like like without looking at the actual art, but just the outlines and everything, to me, it says George Perez design. I can but, see that. Yeah. I talked in the in the opening that where you were holding your breath about Kevin McGuire's artwork and mm-hmm. how he brought out the acting of the characters. Yes. And probably the the, the page for me that couldn't is, is the most true to that is when Doctor Light is in the bathroom and she's trying to get the signal vice to shut up and she just in complete desperation and frustration she puts her head down. Yeah. She like just she's leaning forward. She's got her head resting on her own. She's holding the, the thing in the other hand, just kind of shaking it, trying to make it shut up, and just complete exasperation. And it's just amazing how much characterization he was able to get out of these static pages. Yeah, and I think I think McGuire sort of grew into being an action artist. I don't think that was necessarily his strength at first, which is why maybe maybe the layouts by Giffen helped a little bit. But what he had better than anybody else at this era that I've really seen is that facial expressiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see it in every one of these panels, like all the close-ups of Guy Gardner, of Maxwell Lord. It's it's not photorealistic at all, but it's there's a way of, of getting into the character's eyes and seeing the soul of these things in a way that you just you just didn't see that in any other comics at this point. You described it perfectly when Batman tells Guy Gardner to sit down and shut up. And you said you, – you described in your recap all the things that went through Guy's mind mm-hmm. and how to react. None of that was spoken. There was no caption boxes. You, you, you pulled that from the art. And it's just amazing. Amazing that Ke- Kevin McGuire could do this on his first major you know, uh, you know, out-of-the-gate series. Unbelievable. A couple other fun things I just want to mention. Like, I love on page six and seven when Maxwell Lord's got all those TVs, and uh, like, one of them is Wiley e. Coyote, another one's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and then you you, dro- you mentioned that they, they're dropping hints of uh, dropping America, because, you know, he, he crosses through, on Justice League of America, he crosses through the word America. And uh, one of the cues, though, in the background, too, is one of the quotes from the TV says, Pat, I'd like to solve the puzzle. And that's just such a nice cue that it's almost, you know, it's telling you Max has figured out what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And at this point, though, you're probably led to believe Max is a villain. You probably don't even know where this is really going with Max. And if you read the interviews, Keith Giffen and, and, and JMD Matisse didn't know where Maxwell Lord was going either at this point. <laughs> they didn't know his origin at this point. So he, he was sort of a wild card. A few notes that I picked up, and again, being the Black Canary fan, 
I was really when I reread this issue, I was really paying attention as as how she is depicted in the story. And right from the beginning, I mean, Guy Gardner is an ass. There's no way around that. But right on page two, like almost as soon as Black Canary walks in, she compares him to Mussolini. Probably before he deserves any like that's a, that's a harsh criticism to say to somebody that you you just walk in the room. It's like okay, he, yeah, like do you know that he's that big of a jerk yet? Has he has he earned that comparison? That's that's harsh. I wonder if they've even met in the comics yet. I uh, I, well, mean, I guess legends. Yeah, legends. But uh, so and then the other one when they're fighting, it's on page eight. Um, they're getting in each other's face, and towards the bottom. There's a, a close-up panel of Guy, and he's got like the creepiest, most predatory smile on his face. <laughs> he says, that's the way it always works, babe. First they tell me I'm insufferable, then they beg me to take them home, and you can – oh, all the implication of it. Oh, it's not good. It's not good at all. But given the fact that Dinah would eventually marry Oliver Queen, <laughs> Guy's read on her character might not have been that far off. <gasps> Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. I, as the guy who's responsible for upkeeping Black Canary's honor, I can't believe you said these things. She's got bad taste in men. She did have bad taste in men, but she wouldn't have that bad a taste in men. No, no. I still question what, uh, what Ice ever saw in him, but we'll get to that when we get to those issues down the line. <laughs> Couple last thoughts on the art. The, the scene where Marshall Manhunter deletes the, the files of the Justice League Detroit is, again, just McGuire showed so much just with no words in the page, just uh, Martian Manhunter's face and how yeah. sad he is and pressing purge and the images disappearing. This, as a Justice League Detroit lover, that page just is like such a gut punch to me. It's like, oh. All right, I'm going to just jump all over. I have a lot of other comments I just want to talk about. Now, these aren't specific to art, but I love Oberon acting like a full member of the team. Yeah. <laughs> As if he's right up there side by side with every other powerhouse in the team. He considers himself a full member if you read this. And then when it comes down to the scrapping, he's the one who grabs uh, Guy Gardner by the face. I love that. I love that scene. <laughs> so Oberon is in, you know, I've always liked the character of Oberon, but in my reread right now, I'm, I'm actually, I, I, re- I started over from issue number one and I'm up and around, I don't know, probably on 25, 26 right now. Oberon has quickly become one of my one of the breakout favorite characters of this book. At this point in the series, uh, Mister Miracle doesn't care whether he's part of this team or not. He, like right now, he doesn't he doesn't have the slightest inclination to be part of this group. I want to see Oberon put on the luchador mask and just join up. <laughs> it is sort of a luchador mask, isn't it? Yeah. He, now he also when Captain Marvel flies in, he says nice outfit to Captain Marvel, and I never noticed it, but. The colors and even some of the patterns between Mr. Miracle and Captain Marvel, there's some similarities there. Um, the bright, the bright red, bright yellow, and all. That. I wonder if that's what Oberon was referring to, actually, when he said "nice costume." I think it's just, I think it's the showmanship. Oh, okay. I yeah. think, I think Oberon looks at that, and it, there's something about like the half cape that it looks like something out of a circus. No, oh, okay, good call, good call. And then uh, Batman reading the charter to the members and, and boring them. Right. It's just, just like he's always just been so mired in that kind of garbage. It's very reminiscent of Firestorm's first appearance back in Justice League of America number 179. I don't know if they were doing that on purpose or not, but when Firestorm joins the team, it's all like, woo, Firestorm's part of the team, and then immediately cut to Firestorm bored out of his mind. And I think it's (laughs) Batman who's going over just the details of the Justice League and all the rules you have to know and how boring it is. Again, the the type of leader that Batman makes for is 
questionable. Yep. Uh. And all the all the pieces are there. And and I don't know when they announced that this title was going to be rebranded as Just League International. I mean, I know it was early. It was it was fairly early on. They let everyone know. It's not like it snuck up on anyone. Because I even remember when we were covering Who's Who on a, on another podcast, the Who's Who podcast. Early on, and in, in, it was referring to Just League International long before issue number seven came out. But the hints are here if you look for them. I mean, you've got a lot of the story takes place at the UN. You know, Dr. Light has been added to the team. She's, you know, representative from Japan. You know, the, it's the crossing through of America. All the pieces are there to set it, set the stage for it to become an international book. And really, I think the scope of it made a lot of sense in the 1980s because, you know, even whether it was television bringing everything into people's homes or whatever, the, the world, I, at least on my perception has been the world got a lot smaller in the 1980s. It really did. It, it, the, the understanding of what was happening in other countries, there was a, a greater awareness, at least for us here in the States, it was. Well, right around now, you would have had the closing of the Cold War kind of winding down. There was still enough sort of residual paranoia that would stick around, but it did feel like we could be more open with our borders. We could have a little bit more of a sense of community with the rest of the world that we didn't have to necessarily be on our guard as much. Glasnost. So. And next issue deals with that quite directly. Now, I, I don't when when you were rereading for this episode, were you reading like a digital copy, a paper copy? What were you reading? I do. I was rereading a digital copy, which, by the way, you just reminded me on the digital version that is available on Comixology mm-hmm. on the cover. Going back to the cover again, um, it it it, represent, it replicates the original cover, but in the upper corner, the upper right hand corner, it says "Art by McGuire and Gordon." Does it really? It does. Hmm. Now, that would be a reference to Al Gordon, who was the primary inker on the book after this issue. So I think – but I think that's how it is on the oh. trade press maybe. Well, what it – okay. I see what they're saying. I, I'm looking at it right now myself. I've got a copy of it. Um, what they're saying is it, it's referring to the trade paperback itself. Exactly. It, it's not crediting the cover. It's just saying the trade paperback itself, the contents, the majority of it are Giffen, De Matisse, I, I'm sorry, De, De Mateus. I see, I say it wrong. I can't get it right. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, Mark. Like Dr. Zayas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kevin McGuire, and then, uh, as you said, Al Gordon. And so yeah, it, it does sort of throw it off. You're right, because it is a McGuire and Austin cover. Huh. Right. Very interesting. But even the interiors, like the, the first issue isn't isn't inked by Al Gordon. It's inked by right. Terry Austin for the first issue. And you know what the interesting thing about that too is Terry Austin did ink the first issue, and and now who doesn't love Terry Austin? I mean, come on, Terry Austin's oh. like the greatest '80s inker ever. Everyone <laughs> loves him. But Terry Austin only inked the first issue. That's it. He didn't ink any of the other issues until issue number sixty, which was the final issue of the mm-hmm. Giffen DeMatteis run. And Kevin McGuire came back for it, and 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 uh, Terry Austin inked it for him. So it's sort of a nice bookend, you know, issue one and issue sixty by the same teams. Now, one of the nice things about the digital one, I, I picked up the trade paperback digitally through Comixology, and this cover, as you mentioned, represents the first cover, but it's it's colored modern day. You know, it's a very modern sense of coloring, which really kind of makes the image. It looks very different than the original image, just the coloring. Because one of the things I notice as I'm reading the Justice League comic, and I don't know whether it was on purpose or just limitations at the time, the colors through the first issue are very flat. Like, there's not a lot of variations. If you see a, a, a guy's shirt who's that's red, it's all one shade of red. There's not a lot of shadows on stuff unless it's all black shadow. It's done with the inks rather than the colors. It's uh, when, when they do a coloring process nowadays, and I learned a lot of this from a guy named Brian Miller, who's a major colorist with Hi-Fi, he, first someone comes through and does what's it called flats, 
which is they color the comic in basic flat colors. And then someone else comes along and does all the highlights and the lens flares and the shadowing and the, the color transitions and things like that. This looks like it went through the flats phase, but never went through the next step. If you look at Guy Gardner's greens, they don't blend. You don't, or, or Mr. Or Mr. Miracle's cape, it's all the same shade of green. It's just, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't get, doesn't become a darker shade of green towards the bottom or something like that. It's all flat colors. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Which is interesting. It's, it's probably a conscious choice. And there's one or two occasions where you might see a little variation like there, but not, not much. It's almost all just a flat one, you know, flat colors. It's interesting. It's, it's not bad. It doesn't take anything away from the story. It's just sort of unusual. It's a digital version. So folks, I don't know how you feel about reading digital comics. I, I read in preparation for this, I read the physical copy I've got and I also read the version I have through Comixology. And I have fallen in love with digital comics. Let me tell you, if you're considering buying digital comics or if you're already buying digital comics, pick up, pick this one up. Okay. Pick up the trade paperback for, um, it's called a new beginning, just like new beginning. And if nothing else, Comixology and like most digital readers have a functionality called guided view. Marvel calls it smart panel. It's all the same thing. They basically take you one panel at a time. I don't know if you've ever tried this, Ryan, this guided view concept. Um, when I first saw it, I hated it. Have you ever tried it? Yeah, I actually, I frequently, that's the way I do it. I read it with a guided view. Sometimes I'll, I'll take it off that if I want to focus on the layouts in general, but my first reads are usually with a guided view. Yeah, and especially if it's a well-illustrated comic, because it shows you one panel at a time, which at first I found frustrating, but then I noticed... I notice so much more about the artistry now. Whereas in the old days, you read a page, and you're scanning for the word balloons, and you pick up some of the art, and some panels, if there's not a lot going on, you never even really notice it. But in Guided View, you, you pay attention to every single panel. And I have mindset, so I read panel, 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 and then it shows. once I'm done with that page, it shows me the full page. Yep. So I can see how it was all laid out together. I'm like, oh, that's how that all fit together. And I, I'm absolutely in love with this, and I cannot recommend it enough to people, especially for a comic like this where every panel is illustrated beautifully. It's yep. fantastic. You guys got to try it. Every once in a while, because sometimes when you have bigger panels with a lot of dialogue, I mean, the Guided View won't take in the entire panel. It'll focus on certain parts within the panel, mm -hmm. and it'll navigate you through. And you're sort of reliant on whoever is programming that, that they're following the story correctly. <laughs> and every once in a while, you get to that moment where it's like, nope, we skipped the dialogue here, or we're, we're reading this in the wrong order just because of the way it was programmed and the flow is is a little bit off. doesn't happen very often. Usually, it's pr it's pretty seamless. I did I in my read uh and I'm into the I guess the third trade now maybe the fourth trade I haven't really noticed any problems with uh, the Justice League stuff but I see what you mean yeah I've seen that in some of Marvel's the programming not be exactly as it should be and reading the physical comic of this dude I I don't know that we'll talk about the ads every time we do a Justice League episode well I mean Ryan won't be back because pff, after this one I'm not having him back but um no I'm done in one <laughs> but the ads in this comic they totally demonstrate why 1987 is my single favorite year of DC Comics. I mean, you get ads for Suicide Squad, you get ads for Young All-Stars, you get ads for Wally West Flash. It's just awesome. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous house ads. Love You them. had me at Suicide Squad and you lost me at Young All-Stars. Really? <laughs> I, I joke. I've never read it, but just... I. Having gone through so much of that nonsense with the, uh, with the Secret Origins podcast, it just, it has no appeal to me. And I might be way off. Uh, I could be judging it too harshly for, for the wrong reasons. I, I haven't reread it in years, but I loved it at the time. And if nothing else, the house ad's phenomenal, so. <laughs> Alright, Ryan. I think it's time for the coveted Bwahaha Award. Bwahaha Award. 
That's right. Each episode, we are going to nominate one or two scenes from the comic that we think are the funniest in the book, and they are deserving of the Boahaha Award for this issue. Ryan, which scene would you care to nominate? Oh, gosh, this is so tough, and I have a feeling it's going to get harder with your future guests as the series goes on. There there were three moments I wanted to spotlight, and I'm going to try and narrow it down to the one. Um, the first, just the cover. It's not necessarily funny, but just the attitude on the cover really, I, I think, deserves some special recognition. Um, but once we get into the fight, not the fight but with the Justice League and the terrorists, but the fight between the Justice League and itself, <laughs> um, you, you pointed out the moment when – when Oberon jumps on Guy Gardner's back, wraps his hands around his face <laughs> and his throat, and says, "You're just lucky the other six dwarves aren't here with me." <laughs> oh man, I just I love that moment. And then the other moment, it's it's not like a laugh out loud moment, so it, it maybe it doesn't deserve the blahaha moment, but it's it's just like the subtle character building kind of like nervous titter of when Batman walks in. And like the Red Sea, the characters just part and make way for him and shut up. I, I love all those moments. I think my, I think the one that really captures the spirit of the Bwahaha might be Oberon jumping on Guy. Okay. All right. That's a very good nomination. I'm going to nominate as one as well, which is during the fight, again, with the, amongst the Justice League, not against the terrorists, mm-hmm. where Guy has had enough of uh, Martian Manhunter getting involved. And he says, just butt out, Jolly Green, or I'll boot you back to the valley. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I about fell over laughing so hard when I reread this issue at that scene. That just cracked me up. That dialogue is just hilarious. And for those of you who didn't live through the 80s, you probably don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about the Jolly Green Giant from, um, was it, uh, Green Valley Vegetables? Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yep. And, you know, ho, 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 ho green, green giant. giant. Exactly. So <laughs> that scene cracked me up. So now we got to make a decision. Is, is it the Jolly Green line, uh, or is it the Oberon grabbing guy by the face? Uh, I might be inclined to give it to yours. That's I a good was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am very willing to say that the Oberon grabbing the face is, is just that I think that's the blahaha moment. I do. I think, I think your moment wins. Okay, well, as the guest, I graciously accept that. Um, I, again, I think this this award is going to get harder to narrow down in for future issues. There's so many. I, th- I think the jokes get a lot sharper as oh, the yeah. as the story goes on. Well, congratulations, Oberon. I, I hope you enjoy your Ball Haha Award. It's as it's as tangible as the laughter that we give you. <laughs> Wear it with pride. <laughs> now, folks, if you want to follow along at home, again, we've just read Justice League number one. Next week, we're going to read Justice League number two. It's going to get a little trickier, though, as we go along by the time we get to issue seven. Yeah, for people who haven't – who didn't collect the books, if, if they're coming into this series cold as they're following along with this wonderful podcast, it might be in their best interest to collect the trades or the collections. Um, it, it might present it a little bit more linearly because if you're new to the series and you're following, it gets a little confusing because the main Justice League book changed names a couple of times. Uh, as we already said, the first six issues, it's called Justice League. And then the next 19 issues after that, it was rebranded Justice League International. And from then on, it's called Justice League America. Not of America, Justice League America. Gets even more confusing a few years later. <laughs> the Justice League Europe title, and that gets rebranded itself at issue 51 and changes its name to Justice League International. Sound familiar? So, yeah, there are a lot of comics with constantly changing titles. It's like an obsessive comic nerd's worst indexing nightmare. <laughs> 
<laughs> very true, very true. So, again, the trades are a good way to follow. In fact, the trades are integrating the Justice League America and Justice League Europe books together, so you can read the whole run in one big thing, which is great. Now, while I was thinking about this book, and I was thinking about the whole fact of Justice League of America ends, right? Uh, Justice League takes over. I started thinking about the whole relaunching fever, if you will. You know, nowadays, Marvel takes a really bad rap for, well, in both companies to some extent, but Marvel's really famous for ending a book one month and then relaunching it the next month just to get a new number one, right? Sure. I mean, we all talk about this. Mm-hmm. Well, I posted this out in the social medias asking for people's help. If they could remember when this started, what was the first book that got canceled and then relaunched the next month with a new number one, obviously with the intention of boosting sales? What book began this trend? And there were about, I want to say, I counted up something like 20 to 30 people involved in this discussion, going back and forth. A lot of talk, a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas put forward. But what it really came down to is, believe it or not, this comic, Justice League number one, is one of the earliest examples we could come up with of a comic book publisher canceling a title just to relaunch it the next month. Now, there's at first we thought it might be like Superman or New Teen Titans or Legion and things like that, but all of those didn't actually get canceled. They just changed their name. Like Superman became Adventures of Superman. Legion became Tales of the Legion. Uh, New Teen Titans, the same thing. So a lot of the ones that you think would have been the examples weren't. So here, here are the three titles that we sort of identified as a group as being the first three books to do this, to fit that definition, if you will. First one is Micronauts from Marvel. In, in May 1984, they published their final issue. Then two months later, they published Micronauts The New Voyages, number one. So really, Marvel did kick it off with Micronauts. Then the next year, Jonah Hex does this, Jonah Hex number 92, and that's in uh, May of 1985. Then the next month comes out Hex number one. Now, a, a lot of the argument during this discussion was everyone argued the legitimacy of the restarts. A lot of people are like, oh, well, Hex restarted because, you know, it's a completely different world, a different setting. That's not the issue. Mm-hmm. The why... They rebooted is not a re- relaunched is not the issue. The the how n- the creative changes none of that matters in this in the context of this discussion. It's simply that there was a Jonah Hex book on the on the comic racks one month. The next month here's the new Jonah Hex comic book. It's there was just a, a, a transition there, and and it's not unusual for comic companies to change the entire direction of a comic. That happens lots of times. You know, over the history of comic books, you know, whether it be creative changes or just change the whole tone of the book, whatever, they've been doing that for decades. There's nothing new there. But it wasn't until the 1980s that they started renumbering the comics when they would do these things. So, Micronauts was first, Jonah Hex was next, and as far as we can tell, Justice League was the third one. And truthfully, if you compare Micronauts and Jonah Hex and Justice League, Justice League's really the first big selling title that did it. Mm -hmm. I also considered Wonder Woman and The Flash in that mix as well, but Wonder Woman actually took a year off between the end of the original series and the George Perez series launching. And Flash was it that, took on, was it that long? It was. I didn't know that. Now, there was that four-issue Legend of Wonder Woman in the middle okay, there. Okay, okay. But that's not the same. And sure. it still would have gone even with that. Then you had eight months of no Wonder Woman. And Flash took more than a year, almost two years off, before they, they relaunched. As, as hard as it is to believe, Justice League is one of the first comics that really did that, and mainstream books that did that. Kind of so, you're, I mean, so you're really looking at like a comic that literally from one month to the next is scrapped and replaced with a number one. So, like, looking at the Teen Titans and then the new Teen Titans, like, you're not counting anything like that. But see, Teen Titans didn't end. Teen Titans, uh, the original new Teen Titans book didn't get canceled. It continued on as Tales of the New Teen Titans. Oh. That was an expansion. Okay. They went from one title to two. 
And believe me, there's a million discussions we had. There's a lot of books we all threw out there, and and, and we would find various reasons to validate them or shoot them down. Uh, Kyle Benny came up with a very interesting one. Tarzan uh, was an interesting one. It was published by Dell and Gold Key for years. Marvel picked, uh, I'm sorry, DC picked it up, kept the numbering going. Then Marvel picked it up, and Marvel relaunched with a number one. Now this is all in the 1970s. Now Marvel relaunched with a number one, so there was only like a month in between. So that is technically sort of a cancellation and a re- relaunch, but it switched publishers. So we decided to sort of give that one a pass, because switching publishers is kind of a, you know enough grounds to really start with a new number one. I wonder if any of the Charlton books ever did it. I don't know. I We had a pretty amazing group of people. By the way, I need to give shout-outs to Greg Arugia, who identified Micronauts, and Anthony Dursa, who identified Jonah Hex. So okay. thanks to those guys. Good job, guys. All right, and now for another one of our reoccurring segments we're going to see throughout the history of this podcast, we're going to do a... Character Spotlight. And Mr. Daly, since you are the Black Canary expert, as uh, as word is in the in the interwebs, and I, I actually saw it scrawled on a bathroom wall that you're the guy, but whatever. <laughs> would you please give us uh, a, a little bit of information on Black Canary? I'm not looking for her history and her origin per se, sure, but maybe how the you know her history coming into the JLI or how the JLI affected her or something along the lines. How it ta- you know a spotlight on her in relation to the JLI. Yeah, I, I'm going to avoid giving the whole character history. And I'm going to try avoid getting into the most complicated, crazy part of her history. <laughs> um, suffice to say, the Black Canary who stars in Justice League issue one is not the same Black Canary who appeared in 1947 in an issue of Flash Comics. She's literally a different character at this point. Um, if you want to know how she got to that point, go find Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast – Episode 7, where Chris Franklin and I go over two issues of Justice League of America that detail exactly how crazy her origin got at some point. But (laughs) short story is, um, because of the way the character had been aging over 35 years and needing to kind of keep the character timely, uh, after Crisis on Infinite Earths, it is – solidified that Black Canary is actually two different characters. She's a legacy, a mother and a daughter. The younger one that we meet in this story has inherited the name and originally the costume from her mother, who is a crime fighter with the Justice Society of America. Now, at this point in her career, she shed the old fishnets costume that mom wore, and she's got more of, what do you call it, the jazzercise costume? I saw that somewhere else. Someone referred to it as a jazzercise costume. Yeah. Personally, I love this costume. I'm, I think I'm the only one who does, but I love this costume. I think, I, I think she's totally hot in it. I like the costume. It's just not what I want for this character. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm not going to go on it. The costume is fine. So at this point, Black Canary, leading up to Crisis, she had been in backup strips with her boyfriend, Green Arrow, in Detective Comics and in Green Lantern. And then all of a sudden, she drops into Legends Issue 4, and she becomes one of the premier heroes at the end of that series, and they throw her in there. Now, there was a, a rumor that John Byrne might have been attempt thinking about doing a Black Canary series. Hmm. When he came over to DC, he like did like a sketch for the character and like a proposal that maybe he would do some sort of international spy stories with her never happened because he was busy with Superman. I think it was just uh, somebody found like a collection of sketches of character that he briefly considered seconds of what he would do with that character. 
But it is nice. There is a, a sketch that he did of the character with short hair and a costume that looks a little bit more like Black Widow. But certainly they set her up as, hey, she's one of their, their leading females now. She's the only woman in this – well, aside from Dr. Light. But she's the main female in this new franchise team because they were still figuring out what to do with Wonder Woman. And eventually at this point, concurrently – they retroactively made Black Canary a founding member of the Justice League of America. She replaced Wonder Woman because with the George Perez revamp of Wonder Woman, she was now brand new to Man's World after everybody else had been operating for five or ten years. They put her kind of in a prominent place, but like within three months of the launch of this book, Mike Grell takes over the Green Arrow book with a miniseries called The Longbow Hunters, which is a mature imprint title. And in the second issue of that, something happens to Black Canary. She is captured by these drug runners and tortured. It's a pretty brutal, very mature sequence that has some sexual connotations to what happens to her. After that, she continues to star in the Green Arrow comic, but it's her, her, the, the vision that they have for her is very different. So you almost have these two very different Black Canaries going on for about six or seven months where she's part of this blah-ha-ha team in Justice League International, still with that, you know, like the blue sweatpants costume and the, the black, whereas in Green Arrow comics, she's either in her old fishnets or she's just in like a black jumpsuit. Uh, not wearing a wig, and eventually they were just like, okay, what are we going to do with this character? Where does she belong? And I think Mike Grell had more to do with her because of her relationship to Green Arrow. So she left Justice in League International after about 13 issues and went on to be, uh, it, it pains me to say this, but frequently the nagging housewife to Green Arrow. Um, <laughs> she wasn't always bad in Green Arrow. She, she certainly got her moments uh, to, to shine and to kick butt in that book, but it's not my favorite version. And I wonder if, if she hadn't been tied to that series, they might have been able to do cooler, more interesting, innovative things with her in this book. You know, one of the things I, I've read a lot online is that in this book, she gets painted as a feminist, and that wasn't something previously in her character. Now, that's something that Giffen and, and DeMatteis get accused of a lot, is changing characters or, or kind of generalizing characters and stuff like that. But it, it's fair to say that whenever they would alter a person's character, like we talked about with Captain Marvel and stuff like that, they never did it in a mean-spirited or disrespectful way. Right. They were just trying to have some fun with, in, a, in an affection with the characters. I mean, perfect example is Hawkman later on, how he mm -hmm. is. And their goal was always when they were done with the character was that they could return the character back to you know the original condition it was in. Right. Yeah, I, I tend to think that the way they wrote Batman in this series is like ten years before Chuck Dixon was writing him the exact same way. But the difference is by then all of the charm and the heart had come out of the stories. So you're just left with this disciplinarian hard ass who won't accept any other compromise but but what his strict vision is and it works in this series when it's bouncing off of all of the other different characters and the way they're behaving it's he's a nice foil for all of those but when that's the way he's he's acting in his own books in the 90s and the 2000s and it's sucking up all of the oxygen it's kind of an annoying Batman. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you for that character spotlight. It was nice to see uh, Black Canary and how she fit and how the JLI fit into her life. She, she's a great part of the team, and her goodbye is we'll, – we'll, we'll get to it, but it was expertly done, and it's just it's, – it kind of makes me get a little verklempt when I think about it. I wonder – I think in just her few appearances, I get the feeling that they, they had fun with her. And I really think when, when they lost her, they replaced her with three women, essentially. Fire, Ice, and Big Barda. Mm-hmm. Of course, they replaced Batman with Nort, so take that for what you want. <laughs> oh, Nort. Oh, that's, a, that's a long discussion for another day. <laughs> just want to talk a little big picture about what happens after Justice League number one. I mean, we, Ryan just talked about all the title changes, and there's a lot of expansion that goes on. Again, we've mentioned Justice League Europe, we've mentioned Justice League Quarterly, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the comics. In fact, it, there's, there's a lot of Justice League International living on. For example, it, there's an infamous, and I do mean infamous, live-action television pilot. From 1997, CBS put it together. It's, it is just called Justice League. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. If it's not, you can find it at every comic convention. I'm sure you can pick a copy of it up. It is, I don't know whether to say it's absolutely terrible or absolutely amazing. Cause it's somewhere like a little bit of both. <laughs> like the s- Roger Corman Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to, have you, so you've seen it. I haven't seen it. I've seen images for, I've seen like little bitty clips. It's just one of those things where every time I kind of saw it, I was like, that's that's just going to break my heart. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> yes, it. It is not the Justice League International era done right by any means, folks. And by when I say it's amazing, it's just sort of amazing it was ever made. You know, we've got Winchester from MASH as uh, as Martian Manhunter in green body paint. That's just – that is a absolute trip. All right. So beyond the, the live-action pilot, you also had a premiere line of action figures that DC Direct did in 2008, which I think – I want to say they did something like eight different figures, and I've got uh, – I'm looking at my shelf. I've got at least three of them. I've got a whole shelf of Justice League International characters, but it's made up from different toy lines. Like it's, you know, the, the Guy Gardner DC Direct, not the one from the, the Justice League line, but a different one, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, great line of figures. You should definitely look for those. And then over on the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon, they actually introduced the Justice League International. And it was Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Guy Gardner, uh, Martian Manhunter, Batman. You know, they put Aquaman on the team because he's, you know, part of that series really ingrained. But just what a trip. Uh, Fire and Ice were on the team as well, and they were on several episodes. So all of that is good fodder for future Meanwhile episodes as well. Talking about the writing team of Giffen and DiMatteis, they, after the Justice League ended, uh, the Justice League International era with them in issue 60, the book continued. Dan Jurgens took over. But uh, when their era ended in 1992, they actually didn't work together for another 10 years. Hard to believe that 10 years went by. Then they got back together in 2003. It was a surprise to everybody. They, you know, they, they got the band back together, if you will, with uh, the two writers and Kevin McGuire, and they did formerly known as the Justice League, which reunited the team. It was glorious. I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah. I, actu- I actually read that before I read the first issue of the series, before I read the first trade paperback for this. Oh, my gosh. I, that, w- that was – that would have been my exposure to this team, like after after what I was saying about the death of Superman trade, those few issues. That probably would have been more of my first exposure was the reunion special in formerly funny. Like, I completely forgot about that. That's like watching the trial of the Incredible Hulk before ever <laughs> watching the series. <laughs> 
Well, it was, and you know what? Actually, it's not a bad one to start in on. It was so good, it actually won them an Eisner Award. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a great miniseries. Then that got followed up a year later with I Can't Believe It's Not the Justice League, which wasn't its own standalone. It was actually an arc inside JLA Classified, but, and I think that was more to help the JLA Classified book sales than to help the, the Super Buddy stuff. But they, they've collected that. You can find that as well. Then in 2005, uh, a year later, they, the, the, the band, if you will, went over to Marvel, and they actually did a five issue run of Defenders, which I, I'm actually reading it on the Marvel Unlimited app right now. I think I'm on issue two. It's hilarious. Now, I'm not a diehard Defenders fan, so I can't sit there and tell you whether it's you know faithful and, and if people win in an uproar over you know making the Defenders funny or whatever, but I'm having a blast with it. I think it is an absolute hoot. Now, all of that was with Kevin McGuire as well. Now, Giffen and DeMatisse... See, I say it wrong all the time. DeMatteis. And I actually, for those of you who you, you obviously can't see this, Ryan can, though. I have a document I'm working from, and I actually have to spell the man's name uh, uh, phonetically. Sorry, Mark. It's uh, I'm terrible with pronunciations. I actually have another podcast called the Fire and Water Podcast where I talk about um, Firestorm all the time. And I can't say the word nuclear. N- nuclear. I can't say that word. So I have a long history of not being able to pronounce things correctly. So my apologies, Mr. DeMatteis. We, the funny thing is we don't even know if that's how his name is really pronounced. No, it is. I asked him on Twitter. Is it? Are you sure? Yeah, I asked him. I said, how do you pronounce it? And he actually gave me two different variations. So I'm going with DeMatteis. So. Uh-huh. All right. So Giffen and DeMatteis uh, continued to work together after 2003, 4, and 5 of those ones I mentioned ago. 2006, they went over to Boom Studios. They produced Hero Squared and Planetary Brigade. Those are a hoot. Those are a lot of fun. If you've never read them, you can find either the single issues or find these nice little collections. Definitely look for Hero Squared and Planetary Brigade. A lot of fun. Then they came back to DC in 2010. They wrote the Booster Gold series for a while. Then they wrote the Larflees book in 2013 for a while. And then in 2013, they launched Justice League 3000, which is the book I plugged at the beginning of the show. And right now, they're still writing Justice League 3001. Folks, seriously, if you love these Justice League comics, pick up Justice League 3001. You won't be sorry. And if nothing else, you're going to support the creators that you love, supporting them doing the work they're doing currently. At the top of the show, I promised uh, I'd, I would cite a few sources. If you're uh, JLI, big fans, and you want to read more of the backstories, there's a lot of places, a lot of interviews and stuff, but three places I would recommend if you want to read more about the history directly from the creators. In the Justice League, a new beginning trade paperback, which is the first volume, the one that uh, we were talking about earlier, there is a great introduction by Andy Helfer, editor Andy Helfer. Talks a lot about the formation of uh, and creation of this series. It's a really good piece. You should definitely read it. Probably the, uh, I don't know, the Rosetta Stone if you will, or, or, or the Holy Grail of Justice League interviews. It takes place in Back Issue Magazine number three from Tomorrow Publishing. It features interviews with Giffen, DeMatteis, McGuire, and Helfer. So it's it's a really, really in-depth, a lot of, lot of pages, a lot of discussion. Probably most of my knowledge came from that. It is a fantastic issue. Now, it's a long time ago. It's April 2004. You're not going to find a hard copy of this laying around. However, you can find a digital PDF on Tomorrow's uh, website. Really cheap. I think I got it for like three or four bucks. You know, it's, it was great. Well worth it. Finally, if you listen to, uh, if you like to listen to podcasts, there is one called the Nerdist Writers Panel, where they interview, uh, well, it's actually audio from a con, a convention, but it's, it's audio with Dimitas, Ken McGuire, and Len Wein. And it is a really, really nice listen. They, they talk a lot about the formation and creation of the league, a lot of the highlights and fun, and it's, it's really great. So it's Nerdist Writers Panel, Comics Edition number 74. That's all very specific. Just look for Nerdist Writers Panel. It's the April 28th, 2015 edition. Definitely worth it. And as we approach the end here, folks, this would normally be where we have Justice Log. 
stole the name from the Justice League International uh, Letters page, this would be where we put your feedback. But being that is the first issue, we don't have a lot of feedback. But it is, uh, we're just to pull back the curtain a little bit, we're recording this about two months before you guys actually hear it for the first time. And I got to tell you, Ryan, I, I started a Facebook page and a Twitter account for this show not too long ago, just sort of in preparation to sort of lay the groundwork. I am shocked. Here we are two months before the first episode goes out, and Facebook page already has 100 likes, and the Twitter has over 150 followers. Yeah, okay, but it's like 70 of those are me using fake names. Oh, that explains so much. Yeah. I wondered why there was Black Canary Fan, uh, Cherry Pop... Black Canary Fan X. Cherry Pop-Tart Fan, all that. I, it, it all makes a lot more sense now. Okay. <laughs> Folks, if you do want to follow the show on the social medias or interact, you can uh, go on over to Facebook and just look up Justice League International Blahaha Podcast, or it's simply just type it in facebook.com slash JLI Podcast. Over on Twitter, the handle's the same. It's just, you know, the little at symbol, JLI Podcast. Also, you can shoot us emails at jlipodcast at gmail.com. You might be sensing a pattern there with JLI Podcast. I'm trying to sort of brand that phrase so make it easy for you guys to find me. And if you want to check out the website where these episodes are, are coming from, that's at fireandwaterpodcast.com slash jlipodcast. Well, Ryan, any closing thoughts? Uh, you know, actually, you know what? Why don't you tell people at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, I've got three... I was going to say wonderful podcast, but really only one of them is that great. Um, well, those are the ones I, got, I appear on, right? Yeah. I've got three podcasts that are all now wonderfully part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, the first one, the one that everybody cares about, is the Secret Origins Podcast, which is back. And around the time that this episode comes out, Pretty close to the same time, I'll be delving into the issues of Secret Origins that explore the cast and characters from Justice League International. I appreciate you uh, timing that well. Thank you. That was totally intentional. <laughs> and the Secret Origins podcast, in case you did not know, covers the Secret Origins comic from the 1980s. Aside from that, I've got the Power of Fishnets podcast, which is the new version of Flowers and Fishnets. It covers stories starring Black Canary, or stories covering Zatanna, the Mistress of Magic. And the third podcast for the network is Give Me Those Star Wars, which is just a celebration of all aspects of Star Wars past, present, and future. And aside from the podcasting verse, I've got two other creative projects in the works. One is a web series called Red and Green. It's available on Rising Sun Comics. You can find it at risingsuncomics.com. And it's something that I created with Paul Scavito. Very proud of it. It's just a fun little regular humor strip in three panels uh, with two squares. One is red and one is green, telling jokes to each other. And we've got some of those are old stories and some of them we've got brand new content coming. And a second web strip also available from Rising Sun Comics called My Pet Ninja. I am the writer. I'm creator of that. Very fun. It's about uh, a young kid who is saddled with the stupidest ninja bodyguard he could ever imagine. <laughs> Both fun. You can find them at risingsuncomics.com. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on launching the comic strip. Now, at the time of this recording, it's just getting off the ground. By the time people hear this, it will be well underway. And I, I, I loved the first strip, and I'm looking forward to reading a lot more of them. Thank you. My Pet Ninja, for now, is only going to be monthly, which is a shame. I, I, I can't wait for that thing to pick up a little bit more steam. But by when this comes out, it'll probably only have two, maybe three strips out. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more of them. That's awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Well, Ryan, any closing thoughts? 
Uh, are you brushing me off? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you, I'm getting rid of you and never having you back, buddy. Are you, are you conjuring a green broom with That's your right. ring and just brushing me off? Like, in case, like in case it's not obvious, this is the brush off. That's right. No, I do. I want to thank you for having me on this inaugural episode. It was very fun. Uh, it's it's always a treat going through comics that are just purely delightful to reread and enjoyable. It's a great idea. It's it's frankly it's about time somebody started this podcast. I know you issued this challenge to people a number of times as you were going through Who's Who, and I think everybody was just like nobody else can do it. It's got to be you, man. So oh, aren't you a flatterer? Well, I'm hoping you bring me back. Well, no, I probably won't, and um, I'll be mocking you on subsequent episodes, and I'm not worried you won't hear because you're not going to listen if you're not on it. So. I won't argue with that. (laughs) All right, folks. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening. I guess we'll sign off with this is Shag. And this is Ryan. And you've been listening to the JLI podcast. Want to make something of it? Ho, ho. Green Giant.